0: We said on Easter there were two questions that people are looking to answer in their lives, and one is a conscious question, and one is a subconscious question. Consciously, we always are seeking to ask and answer the question, is this true? So we're coming to the grave side, is this true? Is what we said about Christ true? And in those few days after the crucifixion, we started to think maybe this isn't true, maybe... Christ is not here. Maybe Jesus is not who he said he is. And so then the subconscious question that we answer through our language and through our bodies and through our actions and through what we believe and who we trust and who we follow, how will I live in light of this? And so we are people that have two sides to these questions. That if we see Jesus as the risen king, the Lord and Savior and our Messiah, whose life we want to join into and whose community we want to live into, then we are going to live our lives as if that is true. And if we are people that have seen that and heard the stories and read it and think it's a bunch of rubbish, we're gonna live our lives in that way as well. So consciously we make a decision with knowledge, but subconsciously with our bodies and our actions, we live as a result of the answer to that first question. Now, 1 Peter is a letter that is written to a new Christian community in Asia Minor, which would be sort of modern-day Turkey, uh, that area. Um, He probably wrote it in Rome toward the end of his life. He died in 64 AD, so we're looking sometime uh, in about 60-ish or so that he wrote this letter. Um, And it was the first of two that he wrote to the region. Um, Peter was seeking to encourage believers who are seeking answers to these questions. So think about how the resurrection changes everything. Before the resurrection, everyone's living a different life. They're living a a life of law, they're living a life of uh, scriptures, of prophecy, of all of these things. And after the resurrection, we're those people too. We're living in the same time, in the same way that the people after the, the resurrection are living as well. So when Peter or Paul or James or, or anyone writes a letter to those communities struggling in Babylon, struggling in their communities, suffering for the sake of Jesus, we are those people. Now we can't bridge the gap completely because it is different cultures and different times, but we are struggling with these questions as well. And Peter is writing to a group of people who are trying to live in a community of faith, having Jesus as their center, conforming to the cross, and they're wondering, how do I live if this is true? Their identification with Christ, however, was causing suffering. As you live in light of the truth, there are just some people like Pilate who walk away from those answers and who say, what is truth? I'm going to go find it on my own. And this causes great suffering in the Christian community. Essentially, Peter is seeking to help them with the outworking of their faith in a living way. And so we have this new series called Imperishable, and. We want to find what Peter is talking about in how we can live as people in our modern day in light of the things that are true about Jesus. A major theme of the letter is imperishable versus the perishable things of this world. The things of heaven versus the things of earth. And actually, if you stop and think about it, the opposite of perishable is living It's not just imperishable, but it's living things. And so each week through this series, we're going to look at the things that Peter say are living now that we have Christ who is a resurrected Messiah for us. Peter is striving to declare what living looks like in light of the resurrection. So we're gonna dive into the introduction of of Peter's letter today. And this is gonna introduce a lot of themes so, we're going to go through uh, just a couple of those today, but we're going to come back to them as we go through this series. So, we're reading from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. And he writes this Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he gave us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is, into an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled and unfading. It is reserved for you in heaven for you who by God's power are protected through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This brings you great joy, although you may have to suffer for a short time in various trials. Such trials show the proven character of your faith which is more valuable than gold, gold that is tested by fire even though it is passing away and will bring praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You have not seen him, but you love him. You do not see him now, but you believe in him. And so you rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy because you are attaining the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There's a lot of themes in there. There's joy, there's hope, there's praise. And they all revolve around this idea of Christ risen. They all revolve around the idea of suffering for Christ and praising his name. This Sunday after Easter is traditionally called Low Sunday. And they didn't get that name because... Normally, attendance is lower on Sunday after Easter, but because we don't live with the same hope and joy that we did just a week ago. On Easter, things are bright, and they're new, and they're fresh, and they're exciting, and we can preach a really, really easy Easter message because everyone feels the joy and the hope that is in the risen Christ, but then something happens. It brings to mind the phrase, the honeymoon is over. Because we go through life and things are so rosy and joyful and we move, but then all of a sudden it loses its luster. It loses its new car smell and things start to get real. The hard work of building a life for a newlywed couple begins. The day-to-day routine of everything that comes after now starts the hard work of building a life around Christ begins to take shape. I went to camp growing up and there's always that feeling that when you're in camp, you never want it to end. You're never happier than when you're at camp. And then when you leave, all that just disappears. I'm on fire for Jesus. I'm gonna go and testify. And then that just falls away. Because Our expectations for what comes next are never fulfilled. And even as we read the Gospels, where do we find the disciples that time after Jesus comes back? In John 21, Jesus finds them fishing. That's it, they're fishing. There was no giant tent revival. There was no singing hymns in the public square. They're fishing on a boat with each other again. Because this is the life of Christ. It is not this bombastic. It is not this great presentation of the gospel all the time. It is the quiet intimacy of a Christ who meets us in all these things that we have. He calls them over for breakfast and shares with them life as it is now. And sometimes we We shame the disciples a little bit because they just witnessed this resurrection. They've witnessed the great thing that's happened and they were there in the flesh to see it and it feels like a wasted opportunity. But we know the story. We know what comes next. It wasn't a wasted opportunity because we are sitting here. The disciples did what they needed to do through their lives. But sometimes there is that big letdown and just before that, in John 20, where does he find them? Huddled together behind locked doors, afraid that the Jewish leaders would come and find them once again. And so, first Peter is the letter written to Christians experiencing that same situation, that same letdown that comes after this glorious revelation of God in human form. And they're frankly a little bit disappointed that Jesus hasn't reappeared. Paul and Peter and Timothy and James, they were all preaching these things that Jesus was going to reappear, that Jesus was coming again soon. Prepare yourselves. You can read through the letters as you continue on in chronological order that they believed that this was going to happen in their lifetime. Jesus did not promise that to them. But this was something that they believed based on the things that he said before he left. But as time goes on, they realize that this is not happening in the way they wanted it to happen, in their expectations. And the community here in Asia Minor is struggling with that as well. Where is Jesus? We had an expectation that this was going to happen. And so again, their disappointment looms. How then do we live without letting go of our hope Nor our expectations of what Jesus does for us. Peter says that our faith is anchored in Jesus, and he calls him a living hope. We can use that phrase for Jesus, a living hope, and it means a lot of things to us in different ways. It means a hope that is living, that he has come back to life. He is no longer dead, but a hope that has broken through the death of a savior, or it might mean to other people that we have new life, so our hope is placed in this new life, it's placed in this place where we can rely on our hope, that it's full and functioning for all of us. The Greek here is actually referring to hope, not to Jesus as living. And so what does it mean to have a hope That is living a hope full of life. Well, Peter is is contrasting it with this idea of a dead hope or hope in dead things. That we can have a hope that lives because we are not inheriting things that perish. We are not being willed these things that are going to disappear from the earth. Instead, what Peter is saying is that we can live with hope in things that are alive, things that will be imperishable, things that will not fade, that will not corrode, that will not be defiled by the world around them. This is a living hope. But past that part, how does Peter describe this hope? Why is there a big push for hope in this community? Well, frankly, because they are dealing with trials. They're dealing with suffering. That's beyond what they thought capable of. They're living in this community and the word of God has not necessarily reached everyone that we wanted it to. And so there are suffering, there are trials of various kinds. I think the computer just went to sleep. And so we are looking at this new birth that is a living hope. But there is still suffering. Perfect. And so what this means for us is that signing on to the cross means that we are going to share in his sufferings. And this is not something that we advertise at the very beginning of a Christian faith. Like we love the joy of a baptism and we enjoy the, the, rejoice in the sensation of that camp feeling that I'm on fire for Jesus and all these things are going to change in my life. But then reality sets in is that I was persecuted first. And so if you follow me, you will continue to struggle. You will continue to suffer. You will continue to have trials. Now, Peter is not writing this to an individual person. He's not saying, hey, Paul, guess what? You're gonna have struggles in your life. Peter is writing this to the community. So this is a community that is facing oppression from the surrounding culture. And maybe not so much oppression, but pressure to conform to their standards, pressure to bow to their gods, pressure to um, show them and reveal to them the living Christ who is promised to all people. Now, we see this theme in the letters quite often of suffering and trials. And this is focused on the community itself. We take joy in knowing that there are trials, James says, because suffering produces character. And Here, Peter says the exact same thing in just a different way. But we are meant to have joy in this suffering because our Christian faith is purified by suffering. Now, listen to what he's not saying. He's not saying that our faith is made stronger. He's not saying that our faith is, um, that we should go and seek out trials because that's the only way to a solid faith Some people have taken this to mean that we are not true believers unless we are suffering in our lives, which is certainly not what Peter is talking about here. A Christian faith is purified by suffering. That means it's revealed to be genuine. It's revealed that at those moments, we're ridding ourselves of the things that might cause us temptation or might cause us to wander or might cause us to otherwise be weakened in our flesh. And so Peter is encouraging this community. He's saying, you know what? These are good things that you're going through. The outside community is pressuring you. That's great. That's fine. Because that's ridding you of all your impurities. That's ridding all the things that are keeping you from Christ, from living a life that is a genuine faith. And you can go through all of these trials and go through all of these trials, but you will never understand what's happening here unless you anchor it in the fact that Jesus took on these trials as well. That these things were, that he was purifying. And look at what Peter says as well in verse seven. Such trials show the proven character of your faith and faith that is more precious than even gold. Now, when gold is purified, it's melted, it's destroyed to remove the impurities from it. But Peter is saying, we're not purifying you like that. There's not gonna be a trial by fire. There's gonna be a trial by the things around you, the things of this world. And as the kingdom grows bigger and bigger and bigger, there's gonna be more and more and more pressure from outside sources. But these show the proven character of your faith. They don't give you faith, they show something. Which tells me that there's two levels to faith. There's this internal one where, oh, yes, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the risen king. I believe all of these things on a head level. But remember, there's that second subconscious question that we have to answer How now am I going to live? in light of that being true. And so Peter's just putting the word faith to these questions. Is it true? Yes, I believe in that, that's faith. Now, the second step of faith, according to what we're seeing here, is proving it genuine in your suffering and in your trials because this is the way that we can work out our faith in an outgoing sense. How now should I live? Here's my faith, here's what my faith informs me of who Christ is, of who God is, of who the community is around me. Now, how can I live in such a way? That is faith as well. And so what we know then is that this produces a response in us. Peter starts and ends the same way, talking about praise and talking about joy. You have a reason to be joyful because there is now a hope that cannot be destroyed because it is anchored in Christ. And if you believe that to be genuine, then you will have genuine praise. Genuine faith generates a genuine praise regardless of these circumstances that we're in. Now, this may be the toughest thing for Christians to adopt. This may be the hardest concept to understand. Praise through suffering does not make any sense. It doesn't look like it should work. It doesn't look like anyone would sign up to do that. It doesn't look like anyone would want a part of that. We may profess joy with our lips, but... When the chips of life are down, will we rejoice from the very center of our being? Can we find a way to elicit praise even when life brings us to our darkest moments? True joy is not a piece of the Christian life. It's not an addition to the Christian life it weaves itself into every facet of the Christian life. Genuine faith generates genuine praise. Praise is an outpouring of our life in Christ. It's an outpouring of our faith made real. If I believe Jesus to be true, if I believe the resurrection to be true, even though I haven't seen it, Peter says, I praise him. Despite what's going on, because these things don't matter in this world to me. I might be feeling down. I might be in these dark places. I might be going through trials of various kinds. But because of a living hope in a Christ that has risen from the dead, I have reason for genuine praise. I have reason for genuine joy. Now, let me tell you what this isn't saying. This isn't saying that there isn't depression and anxiety and mental illnesses in this world. It's not saying that. It's not saying that Christians can't become depressed. It can't, it's not saying that Christians can't be anxious. Those are all real, true things that happen to the body and to the brain. This is saying in spite of those things, in spite of the reality of depression, the reality of anxiety, the reality of sadness, the reality of anger, the reality of anything that we go through, in spite of all of those things, we can have joy. Because what we have set our hope in, what we have set our trust in, when we said, yes, this is true, about all the things that we've seen so far, all the things that we have read, the revelation of God in our lives each and every day, we have reason for joy and reason to praise because we have set our hope on something that is alive and will not fade. And so Peter wraps up and he says that trials are an occasion for our witness. That the world is watching how we respond to these things. The world is waiting and watching and saying, oh, there it was, they messed up. So I guess Christianity is not true because it happened to them, same thing as it does, it happens to us. There's an incredible book by... Rodney Stark, that tracks the history of Christianity through the years after Christ's resurrection, the new church, through the 12 and the 500 and the 3,000 as the church continued to grow. But in those days, in those dog days of our religion, of Christianity, how is it that this small tribe of people created a culture and a community of Christ 2,000 years later. (laughs) You want to know what it was? It was joy in trials. When plagues beset cities, when children died in childbirth and people lost crops in drought, they praised God and it looked insane, it looked crazy, it looked dumb, it looked, how could you do this? You've just lost everything in your life, and yet you've continued to come to church and praise God. How can you do that? And Peter says, well, it's because I'm not trusting in the things of this earth. I'm not trusting crops. I'm not trusting jobs. I'm not trusting my own life. In fact, I don't want my life anymore. I've handed it over to Jesus, and I believe what he says is true. What does the resurrection mean for us as a people? It means there is a not yet fullness to the salvation, that our salvation is not quite here yet, that we have been redeemed, but there is a final future salvation where Jesus has said, I'm gonna look at you and declare you to be righteous, to be holy, and you will be a part of the eternal kingdom. But there is also a now to the anticipation and joy of that fulfill, of that fullness. And that alone is a reason enough to sing. That we have this outworking of our faith in ways that are brand new. That we have this future hope but we also have this hope that lives with us now, that meets us here. Because we're not anchored in what we have around us. We're anchored in this glorious joy of the resurrection. And accordingly, one of the most poignant sentences in all of this passage today is in verse eight. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. Believe in him, sure, that's, that. we can do that. We can do that. Rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. That is the challenge of Christianity. That is the challenge of our heart each and every day, each and every moment when we wake up to look at this world. There was a shooting last night at a 16-year-old's birthday party in Alabama. We wake up and we see this news tornadoes wiping out towns, people losing their homes, fires. Well, we don't trust in those things. We don't anchor our soul in those things. So, can we rejoice with an unutterable and exalted joy? We can. This is the baseline of a Christian the joy that they face because they have been into this living hope, the presence of Christ in their lives, that no matter what happens around them, we're not anchored in those things.